Good afternoon, and welcome, everyone, to the OSHA 3030 with Manish Raff. I'm Manish Raff, and I'm grateful to all of you. Uh, we have a large number of attendees uh, participating today, and I'm grateful to all of you for joining us and rejoining us in the OSHA 3030 community. Uh, this is a great topic we've picked today, uh, a federal court decision coming out of the Second Circuit, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, uh, that's revisiting OSHA's look-back policy for how to designate violations as repeats. And I'm joined today by my colleague, Larry Halperin, who is a partner here at Keller & Heckman. Uh, most or all of you know Larry Halperin by now. He is one of the leading lights anywhere in the country in OSHA law. Larry and I have practiced for many, many years together and have handled citation contests in state plan states and in federal OSHA uh, states as well uh, around the country. And uh, it's always enjoyable to work with Larry on those projects. Uh, and I'm grateful to you, Larry, for joining us today. Larry? Good afternoon, Manish. Pleasure to be with you. And hello to everybody. You ready? So the, Let's get started. Yeah, Larry, as you know, we have a great program. Uh, right now what we're talking about is the look-back policy, uh, but we've been doing this program every month for over five years, and all of our programs are libraried on our website, www.khlaw.com slash OSHA3030. That's khlaw.com slash OSHA3030. And you can find all of the prior programs. There's a lot of helpful information. Over 60 episodes of the OSHA 3030 are there. The only other thing I'd say is when you get the invitations in your email account uh, for the next OSHA 3030, the only uh, registration fee we ask is that when you get that email, that you forward it on to three other people at least, letting them know about the great program that we put on. Uh, those people who are in-house counsel, safety professionals, industrial hygienists, who are responsible for compliance, uh, at their organizations or your organization, please forward this uh, invitation on, this email, and uh, let's get them to register. New registrants, new members of the OSHA 3030 community are the lifeblood of the program. So thank you for doing that. Many of you have uh, written in and said you've been doing that for quite some time. We're very grateful to you. Keep, keep forwarding the invitations to new folk, and let's share the good word about the program. So Larry, let's go ahead and get into what we wanted to talk about today. I think the first thing we should talk about is to provide an overview of the facts in this recent decision uh, coming out of the Second Circuit and the underlying facts in the OSHA citation. And then I think we ought to provide, just so that everyone's caught up on level ground, a, an overview of OSHA's policy relating to how far they look back at prior citations to make a determination as to whether to classify a violation as a repeat what's called OSHA's look-back policy. And then uh, I think it would be a good idea to understand how this particular employer uh, raised challenges to, to OSHA's classification of its citation as a repeat and an explanation of the Second Circuit's decision uh, or how they came down as they did. Finally, as we always do, uh, we should wrap up with a practical discussion of takeaway items that, that you in the OSHA 3030 community can uh, take away to implement in your own safety and health programs. So with that said, let's get into the facts of this case. This is a case involving Triumph Construction. 
Triumph Construction is a general contractor, and they, they were engaged by the City of New York to undertake uh, a four-year program to replace water main pipes in Lower Manhattan. And the agency responsible for overseeing this construction is the New York City Department of Design and Construction. And so they had a staff member from the New York City Department of Design and Construction at the site overseeing the project. As well, there were Triumph supervisors overseeing the project. And our story takes place on a block in Lower Manhattan on West 10th Street, right in between Greenwich Avenue and 6th Avenue. That's the Avenue of the Americas. And, and that's in Greenwich Village. And it's a very narrow street, narrow block leading straight to the Avenue of the Americas. It's, the, it's a one-way street, West 10th Street is and very narrow. I would call it a one-lane, one-way street, but uh, this being Manhattan, they actually drive two uh, abreast in one direction, uh, uh, eastbound on West 10th Street. And this is the section where our story takes place where they were replacing the water main. So let me describe the process first of water main pipe replacement. The first step is to excavate, uh, and that excavation process involves a backhoe, uh, tearing up the first layer, which is the asphalt, and any underlayment, and then they continue to excavate a trench 68 inches deep. These water main pipes, the original pipe is cast iron, and it's 20 inches in diameter. So the bottom of the pipe is 68 inches deep. The trenching would require that they at least excavate around the pipe, so 68 inches deep. The top of the pipe would be 48 inches deep, it being a 20-inch diameter pipe. But before they get down to the cast iron water main, they will encounter along the way a number of utilities uh, cross-running or parallel above the, the water main. And these might be typically between 24 and 36 inches deep. And so the, the backhoe takes care of excavation down to that level, and then it has to be excavated by hand, and the utilities have to be exposed and marked, and then the backhoe can continue to excavate down to the water main. And uh, then, then the water main is cut, it is removed by backhoe, and it is replaced in this particular case. Well, the first thing that has to be done once the old cast iron water main pipe is removed, then the ground underneath is leveled uh, to prepare the bed for the new replacement pipe, and then new replacement pipe uh, made of ductile iron is lowered in by backhoe and then connected manually. So there are certain steps that I just described that require manual uh, uh, activity, and one of them is the clearing by hand uh, at two to, uh, 24 to 36 inches deep in order to uh, expose and mark cross-running uh, utility conduit. And the other is the removal of the old cast iron pipe. It has to be cut. Another is when it's cut, it's also severed from the branch lines that go to service the buildings uh, that the road runs along. And those service lines have to be turned away so that they're not bent when the cast iron pipe is uh, extricated. 
and then and all that has to be done by hand. And then when the new pipe is lowered in, it is threaded into the prior section. And that's all done by hand as well. So these steps that are done by hand require entry by a worker into the trench. And that's the process by which Triumph Construction undertook water main pipe replacement. That's where our story took place, and that's how they conducted their work. Let's talk about what happened next. On August 22nd of 2014, a backhoe was operating, excavating that particular block in Lower Manhattan, West 10th Street, east of Greenwich Avenue, and the backhoe operator felt and heard that he had struck something, and the supervisor sent a worker into the trench to investigate. The employee entered the trench, cleared around the object that was struck, and identified that it was not, as they had feared, it was not a conduit for utility. It was a rock. And he turned to exit the trench. The backhoe continued its work. And as he turned to exit the trench, presumably by a ladder that was leaning on the south side of the trench, the north side of the trench collapsed. And it caved in, and the debris of soil and rock and chunks of asphalt fell into the trench, caving in and uh, felling the worker underneath the rubble. Several workers jumped into the trench to try and rescue him and remove the debris from over him. Some chunks of asphalt were so large that they had to be fastened to the uh, end of, working end of the backhoe, and the backhoe had to hoist chunks of asphalt off of him. When he, the debris was cleared from him, he was lifted out of the trench, shipped to a hospital, and underwent multiple surgeries for broken bones and surgery to his abdomen. Within two hours, a compliance officer from OSHA arrived at the site and proceeded to conduct a physical inspection of the site. This included measurements of the width and the depth of the trench and interviews of witnesses as to what the activities were that were going on at the time of the cave-in. And he concluded that a number of trench violations were uh, present in his assessment. And he alleged a violation, uh, three violations of the, uh, of the trenching standards, and he, he issued one of them as a second repeat. One particular standard, when he'd gotten back into his office and investigated, he concluded one particular standard that he had alleged a violation of was one for which Triumph Construction was cited twice earlier. Once in 2009, OSHA had issued a citation against Triumph under the same standard, and Triumph contested it. And ultimately, the parties entered into a stipulated settlement, submitted to uh, the administrative law judge, and ultimately it became a final order of the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission. Again, in 2011, OSHA issued a citation under the same standard against Triumph Construction. And again, Triumph contested the citation. In that case, within the same 15-day notice of contest period, 
the parties had entered into an informal settlement agreement. And in that settlement agreement, Triumph waived its rights to contest. When it waived its rights to contest, I will share with you that the effect is essentially like a guilty plea. And so they entered into an informal settlement agreement and Triumph waived its right to contest the citation. That was in 2011. This citation that we're talking about today, emanating out of the work site at West 10th Street, uh, was issued in 2014. When OSHA issued a repeat classification for this citation, uh, Triumph challenged the classification. Actually, to be clear, they challenged the underlying merits of all of the alleged violations, all three alleged violations. But in addition, on this particular standard that interests us, Triumph had challenged the classification as being improperly classified as a repeat. And they raised a number of arguments in favor of challenging the repeat classification. Essentially, they said, look, when you look at the uh, amount of time that OSHA should be able to go back in time to look at other violations so that it can premise a repeat on that predicate violation, it should only be three years because that's what OSHA had always said in its field operations manual that it would do, is that it would look back three years, what Trump referred to as OSHA's look-back policy. And the 2009 citation was well beyond that. Uh, same with the 2011 citation. It was also beyond the three-year look-back period. In addition, Triumph argued, when you look at that 2011 citation, it ended in an informal settlement agreement, and so that's not what's called a final order under uh, what should be considered as a predicate offense. They noted a case before the review committee. Uh, Larry. Let me just clarify one thing. We, we should correct one thing on the slide just so everybody's clear. So the 2009 was contested. The 2011 was not. So we're, we have a slide that says submitted notice of contest. As you say, didn't submit notice of contest. But in any event, the gist of it is uh, the argument was that it wasn't a final order of the Review Commission because the Review Commission never actually heard the case, which is not the proper interpretation of the law. Um, there was one one interesting fact we just should mention. With respect to the issue about whether there was a violation in the first place, Triumph contested whether the trench was actually five feet deep in the place where the employee experienced the cave-in. And in that particular case, you know, the employee testified and told the judge how tall he was and that the um, height of the trench it was about seven inches over his head, so that indicated that he was that the trench was over the five-foot level that required the shoring. In addition to that, the compliance officer took measurements on both sides of the place where the cave-in had taken place, and those measurements were well over five feet. So compliance officer also took measurement where the cave-in occurred, and where the cave-in occurred, the depth was less than five feet because of the rubble that was now on the floor of the trench. Um, nobody attempted to measure what the thickness of the rubble was, but basically the ALJ took all the evidence into question considering the measurements on both sides of the place where the cave-in took place. The employee's testimony about where his head was in relation to the trench before the cave-in took place and decided that more probably than not and probably far more certain than that, 
the, the trench was over the five-foot depth that required shoring, and there was none. Yeah, I think that's all extremely helpful uh, facts to point out. Thank you, Larry. I think it's a great point. Uh, so on that basis, they, they contested the repeat. Uh, but, but in addition, they also, as Larry, you pointed out, they, they said, look, this wasn't, the 2011 citation was not an entry of a final order because it was an informal settlement agreement. And in any event, that the, the two earlier citations didn't constitute predicate violations because they resulted in a settlement that didn't go to a final order. That was Triumph's argument. Uh, let's talk about OSHA's look-back policy, Larry. Uh, OSHA has announced its look-back policy in its field operations manual. And in the 2009 edition, OSHA stated that inspectors may base a repeat on any predicate violation within the prior three years. These are typically for the same standard under similar conditions at the same uh, employer. And in 2010, OSHA revised the field operations manual and changed that period of three years to five years, such that inspectors may base a repeat or classify a violation as a repeat if there's a predicate violation within the prior five years. The other thing to add is there was fairly extensive publicity about that change, and it was thought to be very much reflective of David Michaels and the Obama administration's efforts toward greater enforcement efforts and taking a reexamination of what was deemed to be appropriately classified as a repeat policy decision. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, it caused a lot of discussion, and it uh, raised a lot of questions about whether it was appropriate the manner in which OSHA had made that change. Wouldn't you say, Larry? Definitely. And in the case of California, the state determined that its its laws didn't allow them to unilaterally make that kind of an announcement. OSHA reviewed California's plan and determined it wasn't as effective as the federal plan and basically forced California to initiate a rulemaking to change the California look-back policy from three years to five years, and at the same time to change some other provisions so that the California repeat would also consider citations from other sites rather than simply citations issued to the same site for the identical violation. So in the process, uh, Federal OSHA used its leverage to change California's policy on a number of fronts in addition to the, the time period going from three years to five. But it just shows you the difference between a regime where something's based on reinterpreting a statute, apparently, versus one that's based on having a rule in place and then having to amend it. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that it was uh, an extremely broad reading on the part of OSHA to suggest that the at least as effective as standard would apply to a look-back period. With that said, I think it's, it is important to note that in the field operations manual, OSHA expressly disclaims any idea that the language in the field operations manual, and particularly this section, is in, intended to confer a right to employers. It, the field operations manual states on the face of the manual that it is guidance for compliance, safety, and health officers and not meant to be a statement of law that conveys rights or is expected or that the agency expects employers to rely on it uh, for the purpose of uh, determining what the employer's rights might be. 
And the other thing I think is important about the field operations manual is that when you look at the look back period and when they changed it from three to five years, the language in both cases before and after the 2010 revision stated that, that inspectors may base a repeat on a predicate violation within three or afterwards five years, but that area directors could deviate from that and look further back than that period if the circumstances so warranted. And so even on the face of the look back period as it was written in the field operations manual, it did not create a strict boundary of three or five years. Now, the only argument which apparently the, the employer decided really not to make was that this is an ambiguous statute and OSHA had interpreted it consistently since the statute was adopted to call for a look back of three years and then unilaterally changed it to five. And yeah. therefore, the question is whether that is a legitimate reinterpretation of a statute or something that requires some sort of a rulemaking process. And even if it is, whether the rulemaking process would be allowed to reinterpret the statute. Yeah, I think that's right, Larry. Triumph Construction's argument was essentially a detrimental reliance argument or the obverse of that, which I would characterize as an estoppel argument that after having established the policy of three years and Triumph having relied on it when entering into those prior two settlement agreements, that, that OSHA should not be permitted to enforce a five-year look back, which it unilaterally changed. Uh, but I think you're right, that is distinct from an argument uh, that this is uh, essentially an agency interpretation of a congressional act that has to go through deference analysis. They didn't raise that point. Well, let's talk about that then. The act itself, let's, I think all, all deference questions begin with a study of, of the congressional utterance that uh, is being interpreted by the agency. Here, in the case of the OSH Act, it states, it, it specifically provides for repeat violations and it states that an employer who repeatedly violates the requirements of Section 5 uh, may be assessed an increased penalty. It, it used to be at that point 70000 and it's been revised to state $129,336 with uh, an escalator provision as well. But the Act does not define the term repeatedly. Uh, and that, OSHA would argue, is a word that it's entitled to further clarify. When you get into the question of agency interpretation of an act, uh, and the governing case, Chevron, speaks to this question, you start with the first question of whether or not Congress's statement was ambiguous. Because if it was unambiguous, then Congress left no opportunity for the agency to further interpret the statement. So the first question is, is it ambiguous? Well. As I said before, I don't see that Congress defined in the OSHA Act the term repeatedly. Uh, the second question is, is the agency interpretation uh, one that is a permissible construction of the ambiguity? Is it a reasonable construction uh, or interpretation of the ambiguity? And that question wasn't addressed by the Second Circuit. Uh, here, the only question that was really addressed was by, by Triumph was if we thought that it was a three-year policy as stated in the field operations manual, could OSHA change it unilaterally after we had entered into the settlement, agree settlement agreement in reliance on that statement? 
So this comes one, in, one could a, make the argument that repeatedly means once a year for three years in a row, once a, every six months. Uh, the idea that you just have one violation of the predicate and then another one within some time frame, five years, 10 years, 20 years, three years, uh, it's certainly ambiguous and subject to interpretation. We don't know what a court would have said because the issue wasn't raised. Yeah, that's right. And Larry, I think you make a good point. The fact that it could be read a different way, which I think your, your alternative reading is a very reasonable one, because I see the word repeatedly as different from a repeat. Uh, but the fact that it can be read that way suggests the potential for the courts to say, yeah, that is an ambiguity, and therefore the agency is permitted to render a reasonable interpretation. So, so that's the, the uh, risk that employers run when they do proffer an alternative interpretation to that word, is that they've conceded the argument as to whether an ambiguity exists in the first place. So this case comes to the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission, and then it goes up to the Second Circuit. And I, I've said before here at the OSHA 3030 that any time an OSHA law matter goes to a U.S. Court of Appeals, I think that that by itself makes it a highly interesting case and uh, a perfect topic for the OSHA 3030 program, uh, as we find here with Triumph Construction. So, so the Second Circuit looked at this case and said, look, we, we don't think that the field operations manual conferred any rights on Triumph Construction or, or any employer, and it, it wouldn't have been reasonable for any employer to have made any, ex, uh, to have arrived at any expectations from the language in the field operations manual that would have been reasonable for us to rely on when entering into an informal settlement agreement because the face of the field operations manual states that it's not meant to confer any rights, it's merely internal guidance, and that even uh, the Second Circuit moved on and said even the three-year look-back language said that the area director can move beyond three years uh, if the circumstances so warranted, and it said it again in the revised version when it revised it to five years, that even that figure was not the outer bounds beyond which the area director could not issue a repeat. So, so the Second Circuit, in uh, accord with the Review Commission, flat out declined to accept Triumph Construction's arguments. Uh, it also noted that it was unreasonable for Triumph to claim a detrimental reliance argument uh, when it entered in those prior settlement agreements because the language of the field operations manual was so clear in disclaiming any opportunity to rely on the field operations manual language. Uh, then I think the last question is whether or not OSHA engaged in an abuse of discretion by relying on those prior viola violations. And I think that's an interesting question since we are looking at uh, the same standard but, but maybe potentially different circumstances. Uh, I think it's more important for employers to consider those circumstances between the two citations and perhaps challenge a repeat on that basis than it is to say that we relied on the field operations manual language in limiting this to three years, or now even five years. Uh, Larry, what are your thoughts on that? I think that the, the argument that Triumph made, certainly now in the advent of the Second Circuit decision, is one that's not going to get employers very far. Well, it appeared to be just a detrimental reliance argument, which was not 
certainly wasn't going to succeed. And at least Miami Industries was a, a case where OSHA had had a compliance officer, as I recall, go out and explain to someone how machine guarding would be considered adequate given a certain particular design. The company put that in place, and then OSHA later came out and cited the company for using design the compliance officer approved. And court said, no, there's no detrimental reliance on the government unless there's something along the lines of fraud. Um, as I recall, the employer was required to abate the the violation, as they call it, or the noncompliance. But as I recall, there was no citation and penalty when the case finally was resolved. Um, in this case, possibly uh, the employer's counsel just thought there wasn't any good basis for challenging on the basis of statutory interpretation and thought detrimental reliance was the only one available. But clearly that's not going to work. So one of the issues would be what does repeatedly mean and you know, Congress knows how to use the word a second violation or a repeat violation if it wanted to use those words. Instead, it used repeatedly. The argument would be repeatedly means something more than that. Uh, there are ways in the future of uh, looking at a citation and saying, okay, if OSHA wants a citation, Maybe we can figure out a different one that would be acceptable to OSHA and less likely to result in a repeat, and you can be creative about that. There are other legal challenges you might make based on whether it's really the same company, and I don't know whether the issue is likely to tr get traction, but you know, same officers, same people, different people. At some point in time, repeat doesn't make sense. 100 years is obviously ridiculous. Um, there's probably some in between. Maybe we could say that the Obama administration went to five. OSHA's not ever going to go any further, but that's not clear either. No, uh, I, mean, I think it's pretty clear, Larry, that larger employers are at greater risk because the number of events required for OSHA to allege repeat is the same, too. And the uh, number of establishments or the number of employees around the country it's, it continues to go up as the employer gets larger. And so this, this uh, concept falls unduly harshly upon the larger employers. And it becomes almost impossible to avoid a repeat when an employer gets to a certain size or a certain number of operations. That's probably the case. I, I guess the last two points we talked about, about listening to employee concerns to try to minimize complaints and avoiding, you know, operating safely to avoid accidents. The, you keep in mind, at least on the general industry side, that more often than not, the inspector's there for a, um, a complaint or an accident, probably then on a scheduled inspection. Then uh, the, the best way to avoid the potential for repeat is to keep them out of the plant in the first place. And that's obviously one way of doing it. But you're right. Uh, the odds are certainly much greater that a larger employer with multiple facilities is, is sooner or later going to face the issue. Um, with respect to this, the repeat that OSHA could, could allege would only be in a federal planned state, so we're talking about half the states. But no doubt, for a larger employer, the risk is much greater. Well, and that's an interesting question, and there's a lot of facts that are associated with this. After the Trump construction alleged uh, violation, 
OSHA has now uh, implemented revised self-reporting requirements, and and the fact that this employee was hospitalized and underwent treatment uh, suggests that all of your efforts as an employer to minimize complaint inspections uh, would would not have any effect on your exposure to risk associated with a hospitalization or fatality. Uh, and, and that's one thing that I think is important to note. And the other is there's revised uh, electronic reporting at the end of the year, and, and that it goes across many of the state plan states as well. And so, so employers now face risks for OSHA inspections that they didn't face at the time of Triumph construction or before that. And, and so I think that the, the best takeaway item, because I think all of those are really valid points, but I think that in addition to that, the best takeaway item, Larry, is when you said that every, every citation that's being alleged as a repeat should be examined by the employer to compare the conditions, compare any change in organizational structure, uh, and, and try and challenge whether or not this is truly a repeat even if under the same standard. That may be a broad way of categorizing alleged repeats that, that may be subject to a challenge as well. Uh, but The other thing is just to look at the initial citation in the first place and, and try to assess whether it's likely to be one that's going to be repeated. And, you know, lockout, tagout, machine guarding at typical manufacturing sites, uh, they're always going to be there. It's impossible to be fully in compliance at all times. Everybody knows that. So if you get enough inspections, sooner or later, if they look hard enough, they can find something. Well, I think that's exactly right. Well, well put, Larry. The the pattern that Triumph Construction exhibited is a, is a classic pattern that I've seen a lot that they settled the first alleged uh, violation, they settled the second one, and then on the third one, the, the folks at Triumph put a lot of effort into trying to contest the repeat classification, but the better strategy for employers is to think more long-term and to contest the very first one with the eye that it is a predicate offense to a repeat. Every first citation or alleged violation is a predicate offense or a potential predicate offense to a potential repeat later on down the road, potentially as long as five years down the road and at some facility of yours halfway across the country. And so I think that is really maybe the most important takeaway, Adam. I'm really glad you raised it, Larry. Well, but, the, other, the other one certainly, you know, we, we want to be straightforward is trenching, got to comply with the law. And if that means that people are going to have to charge more to do the trenching and implement procedures to make sure the trenching is actually put into place on a consistent basis, and that people are disciplined for not doing it. And if they don't do it, uh, I mean, that's what it's going to come down to in order to, to avoid these kind of scenarios from, if you want to call it, exploding into huge fines and enforcement actions. Right. I think that's right. And that's the last word. And I'm grateful, Larry Halpern, for joining me. And uh, in between now and the next OSHA 3030, you can catch more OSHA law developments. Uh, on Twitter at Rathmanish. This program will be reprised as a podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the OSHA 3030 uh, so that it automatically appears when new issues come up. This one will come up either later today or tomorrow on your phone if you've subscribed uh, as a podcast. And so let your, your colleagues know about that as well so that they can listen if they 
can't meet the appointed time for our webinars, they can always catch it on their own uh, while driving uh, to work or elsewhere as a podcast. And also make sure to like the podcast. We, we don't have enough reviews, but we have a lot of listeners to the program as a podcast. We're on LinkedIn, Larry Halpern, David Servati, Javane Nakumaram, others at the firm as well as myself have LinkedIn pages. That's a great way to stay in touch, as well as Kellen Heckman's Workplace Safety and Health Pro, uh, page on LinkedIn. Our next DOSHA 3030 will be at 1 p.m. Wednesday on April 25th, 2018, so about one month from now. When you get the invitation for that program, remember, please, forward it on to three others who are responsible for OSHA compliance at your organization or at other organizations. Our firm's terrific TSCA and FIFRA practices also put on programs with the name 3030. The TSCA 3030 will be held on April 11th. The FIFRA 3030 will be held on April 4th. Those are fantastic programs with large, large followings of corporations that are interested in compliance under those statutes. And the next OSHA 3030, as I said, April 25th. Until then, thank you all in the OSHA 3030 community for participating and for sharing the good word about the program with others. I want to thank Mary Kaplan for producing the program, Larry Halpern for joining me today, and the rest of the OSHA attorneys at Keller and Heckman for contributing to the OSHA 3030 program for over five years. Thank you all, and until next month, stay safe.